HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Good afternoon. You're here with the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Heather Hyman. I'm Lorenzo Reginieri. We're interviewing two farmers today for our Heritage Farm Report. We're going to start off with Rose Balforti of Finger Lakes Dexter Creamery and move on to Get Nutty with Barb Falk of Freddy Guy's Hazelnuts in Oregon. That's right, Heather. This show is all about getting nutty and cheesy and all about highlighting how the Farm Report is blowing up. Well, I agree. It definitely is blowing up. We have had some uh, really interesting guests over the past few weeks. We're sorry uh, Brian Kenny can't be with us today from uh, Hearst Ranch. She's actually having a, a little surgery right now. He says he's going to be sideways for the weekend. But we're glad to have uh, Lorenzo here to introduce the shows as he's the one about to uh, get into it with the farmers. Uh, what are some of the questions we have coming up? Well, switch hitting for Brian here has been quite, quite, quite an entertaining afternoon. Uh, some of the questions we have coming up is basically how... Um, Rose teeters on the edge of insanity to make every single one of her hazelnuts pass these sort of meticulous, fastidious standards. And our second interview is about how this kefir cheese turns out so well from these Dexter, these Dexter cows and how small farms and small farmers are really maintaining the heritage traditions of this country. Yeah, I'm just not to offend anyone. It's actually Barb that's the uh, meticulous nut roaster. So, uh, You've got uh, the name mixed up, but that's all good because... uh, I'm all mixed up over here. (laughs) Well, you've got two interviews coming up soon, so it's okay. As long as you get your questions straight, we'll get a lot of great info um, from these two small producers, both producing what I think are on the East and West Coast, two of the best products that you could possibly put your hands on. Are you ready for your farm reports, Lorenzo? Oh, I'm ready for it, too. Take, Take off. off. I agree. So we're coming up next. We'll have uh, Rose Belforti and Lorenzo Raggineri with Heritage Radio Network's Farm Report. Hello and welcome to the Farm Report for the Heritage Radio Network. We're here with Rose Belfortis. And if my... Uh, etym- excuse me, Belforti. Belforti. And if my uh, etymological talents serve me correctly, Belforti means beautiful and strong. Oh, yes, it does. Yes. And this is what we think about her Finger Lakes Dexter Creamery. (laughs) That's great, excellent. Rose, why don't you tell us a little bit about your operation, about the daily workings of the farm, and about the meteorological and geographical characters of your area? Oh, okay. Well, we have a very small farm. It's 12 acres. We do pretty much everything by hand. We hand water. We hand feed. We're very interconnected with each individual 
uh, cow and calf and bull and steer. Um, we live on a little, what we call around here, a hanging valley. It rests between two great gullies that go down into Cayuga Lake, which is one of the Finger Lakes of the Finger Lakes region. Um, so it's a very beautiful little area that during the Revolutionary War, you know, prior to the Revolutionary War, was all inhabited by Cayuga Indians. And then General Sullivan and his gang of soldiers came through, and they burned down all their trees and their crops and their dwellings. And so the history is, you know, it goes on like that. But then after the Revolutionary War, each parcel of land was, uh, you know, given out to soldiers as a payment because the government was basically broke. So we, we still have land tracts that are in the same families in this area that were given in the Revolutionary War. So it's, so it's an old area, uh, very beautiful farmland, uh, and the lake, of course, is beautiful. And, um, I'm actually yeah, familiar so with the Finger Lakes. To be here, yeah. And so are the Dexters indigenous to this area? or No, they are from Ireland originally. And in the early part of the 19th century, the English went over to, oh, I suppose, uh, I guess you could say they rescued them. <laughs> they probably left the Irish there uh, with the famine and took the cows. And, you know, then once they got them to England, all the aristocratic people wanted them on their little park lawns. So there were little small Irish Dexter cows. Dexters are very small cows. They're naturally small. They're not considered mini cows so they're genetically naturally small and um they were you know inhabiting the mountains of western ireland uh before the 1900s so let me ask you some of our listeners probably don't know what animal welfare approved means how does a farm earn such a high distinction and explain to us why pretty much it's considered the highest certification that a farm can receive mm -hmm. Um, Animal Welfare Approved is an awesome program. They are wonderful people. They have the right um, plan for, you know, we have organics, we have natural programs, government programs, but their program is individual. It's, it's sponsored by individuals, and uh, it's private, and it's, it's great. They're very supportive for the farmer. They have high standards um, for the way the animals are treated, uh, Tell us a little we bit about were, these standards. Uh, certified last December of 2008 uh, after um, a very stringent audit. Uh, we showed them all the practices we do with, with our cattle. Uh, basically, what we do with our calves is, I think, one of the most important things. And people need to know this because we are starting a new dairy design um, to hopefully replace the old one, which is so horrible and awful for cattle. Um, we do not take our calves from their mothers. They get to have their own mother's milk and their own touch from their own mother for a full six months of their life. Typically on an industrial farm, calves are taken away from their mothers the first day or maybe within three days. But it is a horrible experience for the mother cow. I mean, this is a very strong instinct that they have to mother their young. And to rip these calves away from them is horrible. It's not only horrible for the mothers, it's horrible for the calves. And when you look at the practices that, that go on in these industrial farming um, facilities, uh, it, it would scare you to death because um, the dignity of the animal is not preserved. And I think that's what animal welfare approved wants is 
for the dignity of the animal to be preserved so that they can live the life that they are given to live with their natural instincts to be expressed, which basically means let them pasture, let them mother their young, and um, let them be social among each other. Uh, So we do not take our calves from their mothers. We do separate them at different times so that we can get the milk, but we share the milk with them. They are not fed from a bottle. They come into the milk parlor, and they take two teats, and I take the other two teats, and we all milk together. It's a wonderful experience. Well, this is what the Heritage Radio Network feels about the passion that you just shared in that description. (laughs) Excellent. So tell me, so what makes the milk that these Dexters produce so special um, and that it yields such a special cheese, the cheese for which now you're becoming famous? It's got to be something about the breed, not only how it's raised and fed, right? Yes. Well, uh, a Dexter cow is very strong genetically. It has not ever been used as a commercial breed of cattle. Like other heritage breeds of cattle, uh, it is basically run wild for most of uh, its history on Earth. And so when we take this animal and milk the cow, uh, you know, the milk is much thicker, stronger, um, more tasteful, uh, better for you, very high butter fat, because this animal has not been bred for certain traits, like, you know, the Holstein has been bred or the Jersey has been bred for years for, you know, getting the milk um, well, they, they, they bred for quantity rather than quality. So the quality sort of, you know, went by the wayside as they got the quantity that they wanted. Well, a Dexter has very, very excellent milk. Uh, not a whole lot of it. I always say one Dexter is worth three goats. Uh, but still, we, we're thankful for what we have. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Now, you, you mentioned how you're raising your animals completely outdoors. I used to live in the Finger Lakes region, and they get hit with some pretty harsh winters. Oh, yes, we do. How do the Dexters deal with these harsh winters, with the freezes? Uh, do you create windbreaks for them? Talk to me a little bit about how you make these winters a little more bearable for your oh, animals. Yes. Well, a Dexter, you know, will, a Dexter can be lazy, just like any other cow. So if they have a barn, they will go in. And it is necessary to have a barn. I mean, you have to have a three-sided structure at least for, um, for cattle because they really do not like driving rain. They do not like wind. They don't mind snow. They'll stay out in it forever. Um, they actually get very thick coats of snow on them if they stay out in a storm. But they really do not like driving rain and wind. So they do need a place to be protected. So they do come in and out as they as they will. Um, they're never confined here, uh, but they can go in and out whenever they want. Okay. So they do have a barn. Great. And tell me a little bit about why... Oops, I'm cut, you're cutting out. I'm not sure I'm hearing you. Am I? Are you still there? Ah, yeah, there you are. Perfect. Tell me a little bit about why American farmers and farming are so important to this country. Well, you know, when I think about this question... Um, I think that I would like to um, just for a minute talk about the definition of a farmer Uh, because in this country we've had a tradition of uh, for many, many years in the early part of the history of the United States we've had really awesome, sustainable farmers that really, you know, celebrated a diversity of ecosystem, lots of different animals, great varieties of heritage breeds, most of which we don't have anymore. Uh, But we also now today have industrial farmers. 
And I like to make a distinction between the two because one is corporate and one is very sustainable. Um, so the model for today, the, the current dairy model for today, is uh, one that is probably archaic and on its way out of existence. And if it didn't have subsidies from the, the Department of Agriculture, it could not exist. Um, a a, a present-day factory farm could not exist without subsidies or from labor, from you know, labor that is brought in from other countries that potentially or could be illegal. And so when you put together those two things, um, these, these farms could not exist. Well, so it's our belief I, here I'm that the government that should be subsidizing them. For the future, them. it would be great if we are going to continue to have farm subsidies, that they start to target farmers that are doing small-scale farming so that we can change the landscape, so that we can change the design of farming from these large agribusiness um, entities to the local farm the way we used to have it prior to 1950 where there were many people employed in farming and people could get local produce, local milk, local meat. Uh, so I'm really for getting back to a neighborhood-designed uh, farming community so that we are all, you know, living off the, the food that is grown very locally to us. And, you know, uh, the other thing about that is, um, uh, just to, on a political note, um, you know, there's a lot of people now talking about how socialism is kind of creeping into our uh, political system. But the very people that are complaining about socialism are the ones who have helped design socialism for corporate farming, corporate wealthy entities in the United States. And so there has been socialism in this country for a long time for certain groups. Uh, and this really bothers me because it really only supports fast food, fast medicine type um, businesses that ultimately oppress the people of this country. So I am just hoping that through education, rather than through any kind of regulation or any laws, we can change the farming um, atmosphere of this country so that we do start to go back to small farms so that we can bring back a dignity into the farmer's life and also to bring better food to the table. Well, that statement couldn't be more in concert with the beliefs of Heritage Foods. Um, and so part of Are this... You there? Yeah, I'm here. Okay. Part of, part of the, the result of raising your cows in these slow, dignified manner is that they produce a milk and a cheese that's high in probiotics. And I'm an educated consumer, and I still don't know much about what probiotics are, why your cheeses are high in them, and what probiotics do for the human system. Okay. Well, probiotics basically just refers to living organisms in a food. So if the food contains life, if it contains a living bacterial organism that is good for you, then it is a probiotic food rather than an antibiotic food. Now, some foods... Uh, are being listed as probiotic and are being sold to the consumer by large food companies, uh, such as yogurt companies. Um, these foods have probiotics 
inoculated into them. It is not a natural part of the food that they are producing. Now, these food, these probiotic um, inoculants, we really don't know what the shelf life is. So it may be a great advertising um, campaign for them. But in reality, we really don't know if these foods do contain the probiotics that they claim they do. Now, kefir or kefir, however you want to pronounce that, uh, also can be purchased as a starter for the drink or for cheese that has been made in a factory, uh, which is called an industrial starter. This is a watered-down version of kefir grains. Now, I use kefir grains in my cheese. Kefir grains are naturally probiotic. They have about 30 different organisms in them that are alive, and we have had our cheese tested and way past the aging date, like maybe 120 days, our cheese still retains probiotic organisms. So that means wow. living organisms are in the food uh, from the starter that we use from kefir grains, which is just an awesome food. It is an awesome sure is. food. sure is. It's a superfood. Yeah. Uh, many cultures have used kefir, um, mostly Eastern European countries. Um, they have known the benefit, and many cu- uh, cultures have been very long-lived because they have cultured milk in their diet. So let's swing from the health benefits of this cheese to its to- taste profiles. Talk to me about what makes this cheese so special to the, to the palate. Oh, yeah. Well, it's really pungent. It's really tangy. It's really nutty. It just fills up your mouth with um, a, a potent flavor, uh, and, and, it, and it will stay there. It, like, really challenges your, <laughs> your, uh, your taste buds, your saliva glands. <laughs> how, does the nuttiness, how does the nuttiness make its way into the taste profile of a cheese like that? Is it, as silly as the qu- question as this may sound, is it because of what the cows are consuming, or...? Well, it probably is that as well as the aging process uh, because uh, raw milk cheeses, this is a raw milk cheese, uh, it has to be legally aged for 60 days, but oftentimes we age it longer than that. So this, uh, during that time, different bacteria are, you know, doing different things in the cheese. So they do create flavors. Uh, so who knows? It's probably the pasture. It's probably the aging process. Uh, it's probably everything. Mm-hmm. And how big is your production chain? How many people besides yourself are involved in the process of raising the cattle all the way through to the milk production, and which of them are the most important? Just me and my husband, uh, most important. <laughs> oh, well, of course, everyone's important. Uh, it's just my husband, myself, and the cows that produce the milk, and we really have a very uh, close unit here, so we kind of interbe with our cows. It's, it's a very... Um, Familial atmosphere. Yes, yes, yes. So what's the maximum size for this model if you were to consider expansion? And do you think you would sacrifice the quality of your product if you did? Uh, I would, I, uh, we're milking six cows right now. I don't think we'll ever go over 10 cows, but who knows? We may go to 12 cows. I don't know. I think a design for a, uh, a new model for dairying, dairying could go anywhere up to maybe 35 cows if one had the correct facility for that without compromising the cows. But once you, get, once you start getting above 35 cows, you know, a heritage breed would be difficult in, in that respect. Um, I just think, you know, you do have to start making compromises after that. And so how, how many other people are raising Dexters in this country? 
Ooh, there's quite a few now. Okay. It, um, they used to be on the rare list, uh, the con- uh, conservation list. They are no longer. They are now on the watch list. So that means there's more of them. Um, so that's a good thing. And are these, this may sound like another silly question, but are these cows used for anything but their, but their milk production? They are also beef producers. So they're beef actually producers. they're considered tri-purpose animals. Uh, beef, Work, beef, and milk, cheese. and for draft. Okay. Uh, draft is plowing. Yes, okay. so that's the really nice thing about a Dexter is if you start to have a lot of um, bull calves, if you have a Jersey herd, there's very little uh, demand for a Jersey bull. And it's very sad because a lot of them are slaughtered because they don't have any use for them, and that's because of human breeding. Um, but Dexter's, when you get a bull calf, uh, that even if you steer him, he can have a wonderful life until it's time for his life to end. Uh, and then he makes a wonderful steak. So uh, that's that's a really nice thing about a Dexter is not much gets wasted. And <laughs> and if they can have a great life until it's time for them to go, um, it's wonderful. That's the way we want to farm. Well, your passion for the Dexter and for your cheese has certainly come through to the listener today. And I want to thank you profoundly for coming on our show. And we'd also like to thank our sponsor, Hearst Ranch, who are... Like Rose, very much dedicated to producing a quality and ethical product. And I'm quite certain that we'll have you on the show many more times. All right. Thank you so much. And this is what we think of your performance on the Farm Report. All of you are wonderful. Great. Thanks. (laughs) Thanks so much, Rose. Okay. Take care. And we're back with the Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. And today we have the pleasure of speaking with Barb Folk, who produces a very special kind of hazelnut in a very special kind of way in Oregon. And this is what we think about the hazelnuts that come from Barbara. (laughs) So Barb, why don't you tell me and our listeners a bit about yourself, about what you produce, and tell me about the history of your farm. Well, let's see, where do I start? We um, actually came born and raised in right here in western Oregon, only about uh, 20 miles. My parents are uh, from here, and my uncle, who has helped me a lot on the farm. So I was kind of born and raised in this area, and then I was back in Ohio for college, and we went from Ohio to eastern Washington, cowboy country, and then we had the opportunity to actually come back, and we bought this orchard about 13 years ago. Barely um, <laughs> knew anything about hazelnuts, but my parents are farmers, and my uncle um, all their lives have farmed. And they've probably farmed every crop in the Willamette Valley of Oregon. And so I knew that I would have a lot of backup help, and <laughs> they were here a lot the first two years, helping us figure out the whys and wheres and what alls of hazelnut farming and then we just have pretty much been independent since then now they come because they want to help not because we desperately need them so we've been here 12 or 13 years you said they want to help nut (laughs) what is the process of nutting like the process of nutting yeah it's fairly complicated it takes all year to get that crop (laughs) so you're so one might one might say that you're as much a nutter as you are a farmer my husband says we grow them and treat them. Okay. So now it's it's appropriate that we're talking to you at this time of year because spring is obviously a hazelnut grower's high season. 
No, no, fall is. Oh, fall is, excuse yeah, me. Yeah, but we're, believe me, we're intensely busy. You have to mow. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen, you should go to my website and look at the pictures of the ground. And I must have read Spring for Fall. Oh, well, uh, the ground. <laughs> I saw all the pictures. It looks like you guys are standing in a big pool full of cranberries. <laughs> That's the wild rice. <laughs> Oh, I bet it's the hazelnuts at harvest. I bet yeah, that's, that's what it was. It looked like a it looked like a golden road lined with trees, and it was all nuts on the ground. It was yeah, actually really yeah. beautiful. No, no, that's October, but spring is intensely busy. We mow, and I don't know if you've seen the other pictures. If you look at the ground, the ground needs to be fairly perfect in the fall so that the harvest is expedient because. The weather is extremely threatening in October. I mean, you can just get tremendous rainstorms. And if it rains, you need to be able to move really quickly or you just really have a difficult time uh, because once it rains, it's very difficult to get the little, the little jewels up off the ground in the mud is not fun. So with the weather very threatening, you can move very quickly if the ground is perfect. And you can't get the ground perfect in August. You have to make the ground perfect in the spring. And then you grow That's what it I must have confused summer. it with. I must have, I read on your site that spring is intensely busy. Intensely busy and I must yeah. have taken that as harvest time. But yeah, I apologize. You spend a lot of time on the tractors in spring. Uh, creating a very perfect bed so that when they fall in the fall, when they fall onto the ground, it's really easy. It, it's clean, it's efficient, you know, everything just works well. <clears throat> okay. Well, so spring is your is your hustle time, and how did it go this spring? Good spring, bad spring, really so-so? Cool. So. I guess uh, New York also has had a very cool, wet spring, and so have we, and we're still not done. We'll, we won't be done for at least two or three weeks. Okay. So now let, let's shift to the taste of your nuts. Okay. What sets your nuts apart from the ordinary small farm hazelnut, and how about the commercially produced hazelnut? I don't think there are... I could be wrong. I, I hate to say this and be wrong. I don't think anybody small farm produces except me. So wow. when you compare the taste of mine, you're probably comparing me to um, very large commodity production, and the answer is very easy. I um, bring in my own hazelnuts from my own orchard, wash them and dry them, store them in cold storage, and I only crack them as I get orders. So when you are having a dry roasted hazelnut, it's often out of shell only five or six days. I mean, I, I crack them on Monday, I sort them raw on Tuesday, I roast them on Wednesday, I sort them roasted on Thursday, I package them on Friday, and they're sold Saturday morning. Wow, so, so you literally um, almost sort them nut by nut. No, no, I definitely do sort them nut So by it takes nut. someone teetering on the edge of insanity here to run <laughs> the kind of quality hazelnut production that you're doing. It runs on the edge of insanity. <laughs> I have two teenage girls, and we are always laughing. They're so cute, and we're always laughing. And I keep, tell- I keep explaining to them, I am not the neurotic one. It is my customers. My customers love my neurotic needs and so we just have to get this done <laughs> well i mean it definitely shows in the product i can tell you that it shows i know and um, so my my hazelnuts are not done fifteen thousand pounds at a time uh those hazelnuts are never inspected um they're never sorted through the coals are never removed so when i sell mine you're only getting premium quality 
because I have hazelnut-fed pigs, and so all, you're thinking, well, oh, my gosh, she's throwing away all these good hazelnuts. I sort of am only sort of throwing them away. I'm throwing them to the pigs, and then I sell the pork. Ah, uh, I see. I see. So, okay. So the pork, then, what kind of taste profiles does the pork have that reveal the nuts that it's consuming? My, you have to go through a USDA uh, processor if you sell commercially meat. And that is an interesting question that I ask every time I take it in. Can you tell the difference? Because I know it tastes wonderful. But the processor, Carlton Farms, um, are very reputable. And they tell me they can tell the difference as well as they handle it. And the oil is, um, there are more oils in the meat. I know that that sounds From the funny, nuts. But yeah, I, well, you know, hazelnuts are very high in oil. It's the monounsaturated oils. It's the good oils, but um, it has a high oil content. Which That's makes, it, which makes make them good for your skin, too, probably, right? I know. I think I, I've thought of that. I've thought, oh, my gosh, when I get tired of eating them, I could make these wonderful skin products. Mm-hmm. Well, I have eczema, so I'm, <laughs> this, this is how I feel about consuming a lot of your nuts. <laughs> Um, so I actually should probably come visit you for some special treatments. Um, so tell me, so it seems like you have almost like a familial relationship with your nuts and your trees. How do you protect them from Eastern Filbert blight? Tell us a little bit about what Eastern Filbert blight is and have your crops ever gotten it? And how does it attack the tree or the nut? Uh, we don't have blight here um, in this orchard. It's a huge problem in the Willamette Valley. Um, it's the reason we're not organic is because we do use a spray in the dormant season and the tree itself is sprayed. The nuts are, my nuts are never sprayed, but the tree is. Right before it breaks bud, we put on an antifungal. And uh, Eastern Filbert Blight, actually, amazingly enough, there were just a very few orchards in New Jersey and they got blighted and nobody knew what it was. And... Um, it got its name Eastern Silver Blight. Oh, is that you? Yeah, that's that's me sending sending <laughs> the authorities over to the blighted crops. <laughs> well, the Jer- New Jersey crops are, were decimated, but it's pretty amazing that the blight uh, traveled across to Oregon, and it has taken out hundreds of acres. So it's a very serious problem. Well, we don't have blight because we spray this antifungal at the very very end, right before. Or, uh, the leaves pop open. So um, it travels by air. It's airborne, and it travels on very high altitudes and drifts with um, air currents at a very high altitude, and the rain drives it down to the ground. And if it's driven down to the ground and happens to fall on a susceptible situation like a hazelnut tree, then it will establish itself. If it just falls on the ground, it dies. The spore will die. Mm-hmm. Right, and maybe an owner that cares so much about about her nuts maybe just scares the blight away. I know. I think it's all. I think it's when I go out and sing. I think it just turns, just yep. It just creates a better environment, huh? I got to agree because all the farmers that we talk to that really love their product, yeah, their product really shows it in its taste profiles. <laughs> well, uh, the Oregon Hazelnut Commission did a blind study. And they uh, found all the hazelnuts uh, in in uh, the Portland area, and they bought one representative package of every single thing they could find, and they took it back to their office, 
and they blind studied it uh, by numbering them, and then they actually asked the growers to rank them, and without a single exception, the bowl with the my hazelnuts in it was listed number one by every single person in the room, and these are hazelnut growers. <laughs> uh-huh. So it's a tough crowd well, to I impress. Them, I that's it. I'm certified. I am the best. Mm-hmm. Well, this is what's going to happen to your ha- hazelnut sales because of these certifications. <laughs> They're going to take off. (laughs) So let me ask you, how many pounds of hazelnuts would you say your farm produces per year? Uh, We have 160 acres, and hazelnuts are biennial. So they have one year where they are pretty strong producing, and then the next year they're fairly weak producers. In a short year, we have about 300,000 pounds, and in a long year we probably have 450,000 pounds. It's a staggering amount of nuts. It, it is. <laughs> for, for a small family-run farm. Well, what I do, the secret, you want to know my secrets. Dun, dun, dun. Um, I uh, have a friend that I can pass whatever I think I can't sell. I pass to him, and he commodity sells for me. And each year, this is one thing that I'm so proud of, but every single year I've doubled what I did the previous year and I'm really? up to selling my entire we have two sections of orchard one is 100 acres and one is 60 acres and um, I don't the 60 acres that I sell through my little Freddy guys I don't even take them off the farm anymore I, I sell the entire crop on the 60 acres and I'm moving into the crop on the 100 acres so pretty soon we won't even need the commercially produced hazelnut Right. It'll, you'll just be all Freddy guys. Freddy guys is just going to take over the global hazelnut trade. <laughs> I believe yeah. it. That'd be, that'd be a great thing for chocolatiers everywhere too. Right. That's right. And let me let me let me ask you: What kind of food products are your nuts used most frequently in? Well, I sell. I have a lot of restaurants, and they use them in all kinds of things, in all kinds of ways. They put them in vegetable dishes and salads. Uh, they coat and bread fish and chicken. Um, I have several bakeries in Portland, and they use the hazelnut meal, and they blend it with uh, the flour products that they, um, various pastries. And I have butter, and there are people who use them in cute little um, chocolate uh, truffles and all kinds of little things that have hazelnuts in the center of them. And I guess I guess that's it. I don't. Uh, it's pretty. It's pretty broad. They go into granola bars and granola and all kinds of products. And so, do you do the products that you allow them to be processed in go through some sort of quality inspection by you? Like you obviously pick and choose who gets your hazelnuts, right? I am so glad you asked that because. It was a it was a little bit of an issue um, this spring. I actually had somebody who wanted to use them in their crepes. My uh, cocoa butter. I I have hazelnut butter and I put coca in it with a little bit of sugar and it's it's very delicious and you can think of it as Nutella because that's what Nutella is. Grew up on Nutella. Except that Nutella has a paragraph of chemicals, you know, and extenders in it. It's Nutella with no chemicals. So. I, um, maybe, somebody, maybe that's why I'm missing an arm. Yes, Too much Nutella. So, so I did have somebody, uh, they were going to buy it, and I sold it. And the second time, I actually do a lot of 
deliveries, and you bet I actually look at what my customers are doing with my product. I do want to know. They were blending it with Nutella. And I said, oh, that is not going to work for me. I am so sorry. but And I just had to explain to them that I was very sorry, but um, I couldn't sell to them anymore. Well, I, so I actually do quality check my customers. I'm sure you do, given, given the kind of quality check you give on each hazelnut. Yeah, yeah. I don't want somebody... However many hundreds of thousands of tons can of Can you them. imagine somebody <laughs> smoogling me in with Nutella? No, I can't. No, I was, I was appalled. It is, it's, it's baffling. It's baffling. Baffling prospect. What were they thinking of? So, so let me ask you, do you think this model that you're using can be exported to other farms? And do you think maybe that the future of the American hazelnut can be concentrated around small family-run farms? Or do you think that these big commercial farms are going to continue to thrive? Uh, both. Absolutely both. Because um, as long as China is willing to import... Um, so many hazelnuts. Um, yeah, the the commercial farms, and I think there should be something for everybody. You know, I'm I'm I love doing my small farm thing, but quite frankly, I don't think everybody needs to do that. It, you know, why not let China have and Vietnam um, and Germany? They they buy container, you know, forty four thousand pounds at a time, and and I bet they import uh, thirty containers. Hmm. Um, and and if, and there's no reason not to. I I don't think that's a bad thing. I, I do think there's a huge, huge room to grow with the small family farms. And um, one of the questions was, what law would you... There was something about a question of what legal if, action if would you, you could, take. If you could write one farming law into... If you could write one farming issue into law. It would be a protection of the land. Okay. Can Oregon you go a little bit? Can you, can you tell us a little bit? Can you get into specifics about that? Did, were you, some people nationally were paying attention to the fight that was going on in Oregon a year, just about one year ago. It was measure 37 versus 49, and 37 was designed by developers, and they were going to start carving into the farmland, and measure 49 was a um, rural reaction to that, and 49 won hands down, and the people of Oregon did vote to protect the farmland. I don't think there's anything more important. You can't grow enough food for people in a little five-acre plot in your backyard. I love five-acre plots. I go, to the, I go to the farmer's market every single Saturday, and I stand next to somebody who has five acres in their backyard, and it's absolutely wonderful, but it is not going to feed very many people. We have to have all kinds of farms, not just little backyard farms, not just little farmers, but people who can do some serious production. And if we let that go, we're going to start seeing the food come in from Chile and Mexico and, and I don't know where, Argentina. And I think that would be a, a real shame. Wow. I think if we truly want to keep American food in America, we have to protect the farms. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I agree. I went to and dinner that, with two to me, Chilean. That doesn't mean the little farmer. That means all farmers. Sure. And I know there's the big um, political anti- uh, corporate farm, and I, you know, I'm not, I, I'm not into corporations either. Um, but I, but there's a huge number of middle-sized, mid-range farms that would fall out of use if there weren't land protection, like what just happened in Oregon. We would have lost this farm over. You would have lost that farm. 
What? You would have lost your farm. Yeah, because um, the developers, uh, I think there were 15 scheduled developments on my, on my rural farm road. And um, by the time you get five or six of them in, they start calling because they don't want to hear the tractor at 6 o'clock in the morning. And they start calling because they can smell the cows um, when the wind blows their direction. And they start calling when um, your tractor um, kicks up some dust and it gets on their houses. And it drives the farmers out. So basically, I mean, if this development keeps on going, we're going to reach a critical mass here. Yeah, but not in Oregon. I mean, hopefully not in Oregon. Not in Oregon. Yeah, I mean, that, it, it, was, it was a political debate that was watched nationally. Uh-huh. What's the maximum size model for your farm? What do you mean by that? What size do I think I could handle? Yeah. Um, well, I'm not having any trouble handling 160, so I guess I could double that and say that's... I mean, I'm not processing from 160 acres, so maybe I could say 100. If I could, if I could actually do all of my own selling, processing, roasting, and, and keep it quality oriented i probably could do a hundred acres uh-huh wow well we got to wrap it up here but i must say this was really really interesting farm report and <laughs> your passion for the individual nut really came through and i think i think our listeners are really going to appreciate that and i appreciate that and this is pretty much what i foresee happening to your nut operation it's going to blow up <laughs> You so, mean with success or with disaster? Uh, with success. It's it's <laughs> it's a young, it's a young folks term blowing up. <laughs> oh, you can oh, Google I need search my it. Yeah, yeah. No, your da- your daughter would have gotten that joke. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to call her and tell her, Josie, I'm blowing up. Yeah, <laughs> she'll know exactly what you mean. <laughs> yeah. Well, Barb, All thank right. you so well, much, and remember. You. You and everyone else should check us out on www.heritageradionetwork.com. We'd like to thank Hearst Ranch for being an unbelievable sponsor, and we look forward to having you on a farm report very soon. Thank you. Bye, Barb. Bye-bye.